Hey, you cruel coven. I know that this is not how we typically start off our episodes, but we just wanted to add in something in the beginning of this episode because we felt it was not right to not address what's going on in the world right now. We've been trying to find the right words to express how devastated we are about what happened to George Floyd and about what is happening all over the world and being silenced. We don't have the right words to say, and we probably never will, but we do think that it's incredibly important that our listeners know that we do not tolerate hate, social injustice, or racism in any form. We believe in equality, treating people kindly and compassionately regardless of background or skin color. It's extremely maddening that anyone is treated less than, but that is exactly what is still fucking happening in 2020. It shouldn't have ever been okay, it should have never been dismissed, and we need to change it. We've collected a number of resources from social media over the past few days. We will link everything below as well as on our website, cruelincmedia.com. There are so many things that you can be doing to help right now. You can donate to a number of resources, including George Floyd's family. If you don't have the extra money to spare right now, that's completely fine. There are other things that you can do to show your support without spending any money. One of the things that you can do is text Floyd to 55156. That will send you a link to then sign a petition. Call the Louisville mayor and demand justice for Breonna Taylor at 555-574-2003. Don't forget, this will be linked down below. You don't have to like be trying to go and grab a pen and paper. It will be down below for you. There are also petitions that you can sign at change.org, color of change, and everyaction.org. I'll also list those in the show notes as well as all over our social media. Some of these petitions are for justice for George Floyd, justice for Breonna Taylor, justice for Ahmaud Arbery, to defund MPD, and to raise the degree. Information for each petition can be located on their respective websites. Now, if you do have the extra cash, I will be posting places that you can donate in the show notes and across social media. Just a few of the organizations are Black Lives Matter, Reclaim the Block, North Star Health Collective, and the George Floyd Memorial Fund. There's also a fund called the National Bail Fund Network, and there's a few more that I can list in the show notes as well. So the question is, what can you do right now and moving forward to help? It's important not to just let these things go by the wayside. And once the media stops covering them, you can't just be silent. You have to keep pushing forward. You need to register to vote. You also need to educate yourself on how to be anti-racist because it is no longer enough to just say that you are not a racist. Help educate your family and friends. Continue to support and advocate after the media stops covering the outrage because it will eventually happen. That does not mean the problem has ended. It means they've stopped deeming it important, which is an entirely other issue. With all that being said, everything that I've mentioned will be listed all over the social media, on our website, and in the show notes below. We here at Cruel and Unusual understand that we will never, ever truly understand, but we will stand with you, and we will stand for you, and we will support and advocate for you to the best of our ability. It was a very cruel scene, executed in an unusual manner. Cruel Coven. Hello, my little rosebuds. This is Cruel and Unusual, the podcast. I'm Tori. I'm Katie. And here we are. We're here. We're here. 
And we are. We tr- <laughs> we have been attempting to record for probably about three hours. Yeah. We just haven't there. quite gotten there. No. We had to have a McDonald's break. Mm-hmm. We're finally in the same room again because it's allowed. Okay. Just as of today. And we also had to get our wine. Yep. And we had to control a crazy little nugget. We had to wrangle her. Oh, truly. She needed to be fucking wrangled. She needed it. That child was having issues. <laughs> You guys didn't see it, but oh, hoo, 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 hoo. no, no, she grabbed a chunk of my hair, which is fine. But uh, as soon as I tried to pry open her fat little hand and get <laughs> my hair back, she didn't like it. She, she lost her shit. She lost her ever loving mind. She really acted. She her heart fucking broke. Yeah, that's what happened. Yeah. Well, sorry, Nara, sorry, Nara, but you can't pull my hair out. So we hope you're all doing great. We hope that you're all doing great. Illinois, which is where we are, has dedicated today to reopening for a lot of different businesses. Yeah, I think mostly everywhere besides Chicago. Yeah, we that I drove past a lot of nail salons that are open now, mm. hair salons that are open, um, restaurants that are open, bars that are open. And everywhere's, everybody's just flocking everybody is fucking flocking to get their hair cut honey they just need to get a trim i could go the rest of my life without ever going in any store again me too i feel great i know (laughs) i was meant for this i was truly meant to be a hermat yes a hermat a hermat I, i truly fucking was um i think that the very first thing that i want to do is shout out carmen and jen yes because they are new ish well jen's very new to mm-hmm. Patreon, not to like us, but to Patreon. She's new. And Carmen is new ish to Patreon. So we just needed to shout out both of them. We love you. Thank you so fucking much. We, Katie and I, actually just got, we finally, I know we've been saying that we were going to do it all week, but it's been a toughie out there between my kids, my kid, I only have one, between <laughs> my kid and hers, we, it's been impossible to get together to send out the stickers and notes. Well, we got them all ready today and they went out just a little bit ago. So all of our beautiful, beautiful patrons are getting some surprises in the mail. Surprises. They all fit in an envelope. So don't yeah. be expecting like a fucking bouquet of roses. Don't fucking right? get excited. But I will take a bouquet <laughs> of roses. You know what? Can we I just, just tell you something? The, the black roses. Yeah, we were just looking at black roses, which we would both love. Hint, hint. Hmm. Um, I don't know. Are our husbands listening? No, they don't listen. <laughs> Mine doesn't listen anyway. No. Um, he probably would be ashamed of me. <laughs> but, but I have been trying to get my husband to send me flowers for seven years oh tanner won't in the mail yeah. like he'll bring them home like every like once every three years but yeah. he will not send me fucking fl- i just want to be sent flowers uh, to my door tanner knows that i would fucking kill him i just like the act of it i like really? the act I of don't. like I, you know what i was thinking of you and yeah. I wanted you to have this little thing. Oh, yeah. I want to be thought of, but you not know, with flowers. I like certain flowers. Because they're expensive and they just sit there and fucking die. Oh, that's going to come out of his checking account. I don't care. Mine. I, I don't care. I would rather, if he's going to spend money on me, I want it to be on, like, food. Something I can use. Like, I don't know. Perfume. <laughs> Why did it say it like that? Perfume. <clears throat> um, like, I don't know. Get me. That's what he got me for Mother's Day, even though I'm not his mother gift cards because i want to pick out like my own shit you know what i mean i don't know flowers are fine but i don't i don't he knows he knows i don't want them my husband knows i want them but he won't give them to me um (laughs) fucker 
<laughs> I remember right before he and I got together, two different men sent me flowers on Valentine's Day. Ooh, the same Just Valentine's saying. Day? Oh, well, yeah, honey. <laughs> <laughs> I felt really bad about the one because I just was totally not into him, but he just liked me. I didn't even, yeah. I wasn't even leading him on. Huh. I wasn't at all. I wasn't I, even leading. I really wasn't. Like we sat up there in my kitchen in my parents' mm-hmm. old house and I told him, I just want to be your friend. And he was like, yeah, cool. But then he sent me fucking flowers. Hmm. So do friends send each other flowers? I can't even get my yeah. fucking husband to send me flowers. <laughs> I feel like it's time for... The question of the day. Ooh, honey. Ooh, that was a little saucy. It was fucking saucy, fancy shit. All right. You're welcome. I ha- Thanks. Thanks. I hate it. I hate it. <laughs> okay. I have a question. This is from Ms. Cassie Sharp. Who we fucking love. Of course. We love the shit out of Cassie Sharp. Of course. This is from the Facebook group from Cassie. She asks... If you had to choose one serial killer to kidnap you, which one do you think you'd be able to escape? First of all, Miss Cassie, I don't think I could escape any of them because I am not very nimble and I'm not very quick (laughs) and I cannot jump over the candlestick. (laughs) I can't jump over shit. (laughs) And also, if I was trying to escape a serial killer, he'd have to be as pudgy as me. Because because if he wasn't... No, Dennis Rader. <laughs> I um, was actually going to say him again. I this was week. too because he, yeah, yeah, because he's a dork first of all, but he does things. <laughs> he would typically do things before yeah. actually killing. Yeah, like the nice We'd talker would just fucking come in and start. Yeah. Or, Dick. I'm sorry, Nate Stalker. Dick Ramirez. Yeah, he would just come in and start like and, yeah. and shooting we- and stuff, but. BTK would, you know, try to do all this fancy shit. He tried to be a fucking artist. I'm going to bind you and I'm going to torture you and I'm going to kill you. Yeah. So I feel like maybe that would give me some time. Fuck off, Dennis. Um, okay, Denny. Okay. I was thinking this is kind of not following the rules because you said one and this is two. It's our podcast, Cassie. (laughs) Yeah, Cassie. (laughs) Um, Tell the me Lonely Hearts Killers that oh, I actually yeah. talked about in like one of the first episodes because I feel like they would try to lure me in with one of their classified ads and I would get there and we totally wouldn't fucking hit it off. So I would not <laughs> be sleeping in the bed with him. He'd be like five minutes later, be like, uh, no, this is not working. I'm, I'm outie. Leaving. Goodbye. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like we just wouldn't fucking mesh. So they wouldn't end up killing me because they would have no reason to. Right. You know? Right. Maybe also Gary Ridgway, the Green River Killer. Oh. I'm I'm not afraid to bite a dick if the situation warrants it. The situation always warrants it. I would totally just fucking be like, oh. Is that I'm your gonna dick? bite your dick. <laughs> I'm gonna bite your dick. Um. Oh, is that a dick? Let me bite it. Oh, is that what that is? <laughs> oh, it looks kind of like a mushroom. <laughs> and then it all went black. Okay. <laughs> Can we get? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um. Today, dear Coven, we're talking about. We've got two stories. Okay? We have two stories. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> um. They are Hollywood murders. Hollywood. Hollywood. Holly weird. Hey, Hollywood. And Victoria. On the kick drum? You're fucking first. Yeah, I'm first. So I am going to be talking about the untimely and incredibly sad death of Miss Rebecca Schaefer. Oh, 
Hers is fucking sad. Do you know about it? Yeah. Rebecca Schaefer grew up in a Jewish household in Oregon. As a child, she wanted to be a rabbi, which is definitely unusual for a child, I feel. Yeah. Like, you normally don't, like, normally children are like, I want to be a singer. I want to be, you know what I mean? Well, Miss Rebecca wanted to be a rabbi. She also had a massive passion for drama, same, and became a teen model. There was a hairdresser that she went to who kind of, like, planted the seed in her mind and she knew someone the hairdresser knew someone that ran a model agency so they kind of linked up through the hairdresser okay in the summer of 1984 rebecca went to new york city from oregon and signed with elite model management her parents realized her passion and they ended up letting her stay in new york city at the age of 16 no yeah right 16. I don't like, that. like, if I was in New York City when I was 16, I would have been fucking everyone <laughs> and everything <laughs> up. Uh-huh. Rebecca moved into an apartment with other models and went to a children's school founded for people who were working in the entertainment industry. Oh, okay. Yeah. She had a short run as Annie on One Life to Live. Oh, my and- mother loved yeah. <laughs> I used to work with a lady who always had to turn the TV on uh-huh. in the menswear store at noon or one or whatever to watch it. I was named after Katie McLean. Oh, yeah. But I don't think That's she right. was from One Life to Live. Oh, she was on um, All My Children. Oh. That's what it was. That was one of my mom's favorites. All My Children. That was another one. Yeah. So modeling wasn't exactly going how she wanted it to go because she was five foot seven, which is two inches shorter than the industry standard for high fashion models. Mm-hmm. In 1985, at the age of 17, she moves to Tokyo, Japan. She's just like fucking more worldly and cultured than I ever will be. Yeah. Before she's even 20. Yeah. Before mm-hmm. she's even fucking 18. Yeah. So the requirements are a little bit different there. They wanted the girl next door look, which she did have, but she still struggled. So she went back to New York City and she decided to focus instead on acting. Rebecca won smaller roles in Woody Allen's Radio Days and Steven Spielberg's Amazing Stories. She was still working as a waitress on the side because obviously acting, modeling, that didn't pay the bills. Mm-hmm. She then landed the cover of Seventeen Magazine, which was a huge fucking deal. Like, do you remember Seventeen oh, Magazine yeah. and loved like it. YM and all of those? Yeah. They were gold. Fucking loved them. I Cosmo used to go girl. Taco Bell. Cosmo oh, Girl. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I used to go to the market and just scan. Do you mm-hmm. remember the rack? Oh yeah, love it. Yeah. Now the cover of Seventeen Magazine is what caught the attention of my sister Sam producers out in Los Angeles. She auditioned and got the role on the show. She moved to California from New York City in 1986, and she rose to fame very, very quickly because of my sister, Sam. Mm -hmm. She lived in a rental house all alone. Now, some reports said that she really enjoyed living in her own space, but she may have been a little bit lonely, which rightfully so. Both. I like to be by myself, but I get lonely after a while. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. I think everybody does. But then, like, immediately after, like, I'm with, like, I want them to leave. I don't know. (laughs) Never happy. (laughs) hard to please me i don't want flowers and i don't want your company (laughs) (laughs) okay um once my sister sam got to the second season it kind of plummeted didn't do that well and the network ended up switching it to saturday nights which is kind of like the kiss of death at the time and probably right. now, too. I don't really know. Nobody's really home. I mean, now they are, but... No, Saturday they're all out fucking TV. around, going to clubs and, and fist each other and Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> obviously, the ratings plummeted, and ultimately, CBS ended up canceling it. 
However, silver lining, the show opened a door for Rebecca and people knew who she was. That's good. Yeah. So it got her name out there. Got her name out there. So Brad Silverling was her boyfriend. Just a little fun fact in here. Brad Silverling was her boyfriend for a while. He went on to become a film and TV director, and he actually directs Jane the Virgin. Oh, really? Isn't that weird? Just hmm. I don't know why that's weird. It is. Because it feels like this happened so yeah. long ago, even though it didn't. Right. You know. Um, Brad and Rebecca dated on and off until her death. So we're in 1989 now. Mm-hmm. And Rebecca is in her home waiting for a script that she was set to read for that day. It was for a part in Godfather Part 3. Mm-hmm. She was going to be auditioning for the part of Mary. Let's talk about Robert John Bardo. He grew up in Tucson, Arizona, and he was the youngest of seven fucking siblings. Could you imagine? No, thanks. He dealt with a lot of abuse reportedly from one of his siblings, and he was even placed in fucking foster care after threatening suicide. Oh. Mm-hmm. He had an abnormal fascination for female celebrities from a very young age. A teacher would later describe Robert John Bordeaux as a time bomb. The teacher said that he was just on the verge of fucking exploding. <sighs> yeah. I don't know if you remember the little girl named Samantha Smith. She was like a peace activist, a really young one. And she became famous after sending a letter to the Soviet leader. Mm-hmm. Do you remember hearing about this? Yeah. Um, Vaguely. Yeah. So they, they basically called her a goodwill ambassador and Bardo became obsessed with her. Mm. Isn't that, it's just fucking disgusting. It's, yeah. It's icky. But he was, at the time, he was only a couple years older than her. I think she was around 11 and he was around 13. Okay. So he ended up sending her a shit ton of letters. He even went as far as to go to Maine to try and find her. Jeez. Mm-hmm. But authorities located him first and sent him home. Isn't that just number one? Isn't that weird that he was intercepted by authorities? To me, that says that there was more going on there. Right. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, if he was that young, too, maybe they just saw him on his own. and Yeah, and just sent him home. Yeah, that's true. I don't know. Tragically, Samantha ended up dying in a plane crash when she was 13 years old. Yeah. Now, Robert John Bardot did pretty well in school, but he would write teachers threatening letters. Mm -hmm. So while he got good grades... He just wasn't that great of a person. Like, yeah. I, don't, <laughs> I don't know how to explain that. Like, yeah. he was a good student, but he wasn't a good student. Right. Good student academically, but not behaviorally. Yeah. Good. Oh, that was... I'm you, Dr. Katie. You must have been a good student academically. I was a bad student, but I didn't go to school. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. Honestly. <laughs> he ended up being hospitalized twice due to emotional damages and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. That explains a lot of the, uh, like, rage Oh, for sure. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Because I, I mean, up until then, I don't know if he was medicated or, like, they found any medications that worked well with the system and with the things that he was going through or not. Mm -hmm. But up until then, he was trying to deal with all of that on his own. Yeah, I'm sure he was just at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. They were probably saying, oh, he has temper tantrums. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure that that's what they were saying. He's being a boy. He'll outgrow it. I've heard that one. He dropped out of school around the age of 16 and started working at a jack-in-the-box. I've never been to a jack-in-the-box. Neither have I. I think they're West Coast things. I hear it's good. Right? I don't know. I think they're West Coast I think In-N-Out is West Coast. Oh, that's In-N-Out. Yeah. Everyone's they, on I, here maybe probably jack like, you're wrong. The, maybe <laughs> jack-in-the-box is a Southern thing. I have no idea. I don't I know. just know there's not one here. Have you ever been to jack-in-the-box? Let us know in the comments below. <laughs> because it's super fucking important. Okay. Leave us a thumbs up. 
<laughs> interact. Don't forget to subscribe. Don't forget to subscribe. Okay. <laughs> this is the same year that My Sister Sam first aired on TV. He became obsessed with Patty, which was Rebecca's character. And at first, he really just loved her innocence. He even built a shrine to her hmm. in his room. I'm not going to lie and pretend like I didn't have a Johnny Depp wall. This is true, but I'm thinking that his shrine went a little bit further, but I suppose I don't know for sure. I'm sure it did. His infatuation started growing and morphing into an actual obsession with Rebecca herself. Mm -hmm. Whenever, do you remember writing, like getting celebrities' addresses and writing to them? Yeah, but they weren't real. No, we thought they were. Yeah, exactly. Or it was like their publicist or somebody who would send things back. Like just some random P.O. box, you know? Yeah, exactly. So at this time, Some celebrities were writing back, and Rebecca was one of them. Okay. Now, Rebecca would always just kind of write back, like, it would be like a postcard with a headshot and a small note. It's like a generic. Yeah, something simple and easy for her to write hundreds of people, Mm -hmm. you know. So when Robert John Bardot sent her fan mail, she sent him back, quote, yours was one of the nicest ones I've ever received, end quote, in response to his fan mail. Mm-hmm. The day he received her letter, he says, quote, when I think of her, I would like to become famous to impress her, end quote. He wrote this in his diary. Okay. Now, June of 1987, Robert John Bardot heads off to California to meet Rebecca. For this reason. Mm-hmm. Yep. He went to the Warner Brothers lot where my sister Sam was filmed. He had a teddy bear, which is cute, you know. Sure. And he also had roses. And the guards were like, get the fuck out of here. Mm-hmm. You're not going to see Rebecca. <laughs> Sounds like me. Yeah, you're just, you're not, it's not going to happen. Get the fuck out of here with your fucking teddy bear. Yeah, your go back roses. home. She doesn't want your teddy bear. She's a grown woman. Mm-hmm. One of the guards later said that he thought that Robert John Bardot was like a lovesick puppy. And apparently he just kept saying Rebecca's name. Mm. Like he kept, you know, like, let's just say he was like, okay, I really need to get in there and see Rebecca yeah. because Rebecca and I are in love and Rebecca is so beautiful and I just need to go touch Rebecca. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Something like that. Yeah. He couldn't get in to see Rebecca, but he ended up coming back a month later and this time he had a knife in his bag, mm. but don't worry. He didn't use it because he was turned away again. He called a ton. He just kept leaving various voicemails for Rebecca and he wanted his messages relayed to her. Mm-hmm. It isn't known if they were ever relayed, but it's not thought that they were. Right. It's thought that Rebecca did not even know that Mm -hmm. he was doing this. Right. Another little excerpt from Bardo's diary. I don't lose. Period. (laughs) Isn't that fucking disgusting and scary? He now has a growing fascination with pop singers that were popular, and he kept sending obsessive love letters to them as well. In 1989, Bardot watched the class struggle in Beverly Hills. Rebecca appears in bed with another male actor, and he fucking flew off the goddamn handle. No. Mm-hmm. The scene physically and emotionally enrages Bardot. God. Yes. He writes, and I, I think he says this as well, quote, Rebecca has just become another Hollywood whore, mm-hmm. end quote. And the whole Fuck. reason that he really liked her was because she was so innocent and childlike. Right. God. She's an adult now and he loved her old good girl image. Okay, well, you know what? Fuck yourself right into the sun. <laughs> After he freaks the fuck out, he ends up mailing a letter to his sister who lives in Tennessee. He says that if he can't have Rebecca, no one can. Oh, like, wow. A sign. What never do you heard, think? That's never a heard that one sign. before. Yeah. That always ended well yeah. when a man said that. <sighs> Quote, I have an obsession with the unattainable. 
and I have to eliminate what I cannot obtain, end Hmm. quote. So he looks for Rebecca's address, and he ended up learning about a man named Arthur Jackson from an article in People magazine. He had stabbed an actress in 1982 named Teresa, and Mm -hmm. Teresa survived. Mm -hmm. He had used a private investigator to obtain the actress's address. So Bardot does the same thing. Real quick, 82 is when mine happens, too. Oh, what really? What the fuck, 80s? That's weird. 80s, come on. Yeah. Do better. I do better. So, Bardot does the same thing. He pays someone $250, and he gets her address. Hmm. This private investigator used the DMV because the DMV used to let you access as easily because it was public record. Great. You could literally just go into the DMV and tell someone, or and ask and say their name. Yeah. And as long as they had a driver's license, obviously, mm-hmm. then you could get their address. That's fucking scary. Why? I don't know. I just, I don't, I don't know why that, I I don't know. It should have, you wouldn't think that that would have ever been a thing. No. You know? For all the serial killers that were going around in the fucking 70s and 80s. Oh yeah, let's just do this. Okay. Now, he gets the address. His next logical thought is, I need to purchase a gun. Hmm. Yep. So he goes into the shop and he was honest on the form. So you have to fill out a form to get a gun. In case you didn't know. And there's a question on there, something along the lines of, do you have any mental health, quote unquote, issues? Mm -hmm. And he checks the box. And the sales rep denies him the purchase. As rightfully so, that's what he was trained to do. Yeah. Now, Bardot is fucking pissed and he's acting all Bardot-ish and he wants to fill out another form. (laughs) Give me (laughs) a new one. Yeah. Can I please have a new one? And the sales rep is like, no, you can't. I already know what's going on (laughs) here. So Bardot leaves. He then persuades his older brother to buy the gun instead. Hmm. Mm-hmm. He ends up getting a 357 Magnum handgun. And just in case you are wondering, this is illegal. Mm-hmm. You, cannot, you cannot have someone buy a gun for you because you can't get one yourself. Right. That's completely <laughs> defeating the purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, also, the brother was never charged. And I don't think I agree with that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, maybe he shouldn't have been charged for murder. I don't know. But I feel like he should have been charged for something. I th- yeah. I think it depends on how much he knew and how much. Right. How and he knew some things. He knew his brother had mental issues. Yes. But still back then, it's like, you know, so what? You know what I mean? <sighs> yeah. And I then there's so many people who are like, everybody should have a gun. Gun yeah. for you. Gun for right. you. Gun for you. So I don't know. I just don't agree with him not being charged with right. anything. No, no, no. Yeah. No, something should have happened. Mm-hmm. So Bardot grabs the gun and he heads off back to hollywood july 18th 1989 katie was nine days old i was nine days old (laughs) you were a little young buck i was a little baby or i guess you were a doe a fawn (laughs) july 18th 1989 bardo finds her house because he gets the fucking address Mm -hmm. and he rings her doorbell rebecca answers thinking it's the script that she's been waiting for the godfather part three script Mm -hmm. but it's clearly bardo Bardo shows her the note that she sent back to him, the one that said yours is one of the nicest I've ever received or whatever she said. Mm-hmm. And she shakes his hand and tells him to have a nice day. There's just like a brief little conversation. She's nice and yeah. cordial, but she's like, okay, this like this is kind of weird. It's an invasion. Right. You know. He walks away, but after he leaves, he gets incredibly infuriated because she turned him away. She was supposed to, in his head, right? He was going, or she was going to just fall in love with him, and they were going to live happily ever after. Yeah, this was like a delusion that he made up. Mm-hmm. So he goes to a nearby restaurant and he orders onion rings and cheesecake. Ew! Terrible fucking combination. Very bad. So after he stews on it, 
while eating cheesecake and onion rings, he goes back to Rebecca's house. He wanted to, now this is what he's saying. He wanted to give her a CD and a note that he forgot to give her. That's what he said. Mm -hmm. However, that's that's his excuse to justify going back. However, why the fuck did he bring a gun, right? So he had a gun and he also had a copy of the book Catcher in the Rye. And I'm sure you know this, but two other men, I'm sure more than two, but two notable men that had this in their hands when they murdered people were John H. Jr., which was Ronald Reagan's killer, Mm -hmm. and Mark David Chapman, which was John Lennon's killer. Yeah. Apparently, he also sometime during that time frame had called his sister, the one that he wrote the letter to in Tennessee, and he told her like vague plans and she brushed it off at first anyway. So Bardot rings Rebecca's doorbell again and she answers once again, expecting it to be the script. So this time she's not quite as nice, obviously. And he ends up shooting her in the chest twice at point blank range and he flees the scene. He reports that as she fell to the ground, she screamed, why? Isn't that just so fucking sad? That hurts my heart. Yeah. For no fucking reason. No reason. No reason at all. She took a role in a movie and it pissed him off. Yeah. I hate that so fucking much. (sighs) Okay. A neighbor ends up hearing her screams and the shots and they call the police, but she ended up passing away at a hospital not long after arriving there. And you know what? I bet she knew... Not that she was going to die, but as women, as people, yeah. you can tell when something is off. Oh, with yeah, you know. for sure. For sure. God. So after Bardo leaves, he starts running around traffic and screaming. Wow. Bardo had committed several crimes in the 18 months prior to killing Rebecca. Domestic violence and disorderly conduct, and he was arrested three times. But he was still out fucking around. Yep. yep. That's maddening. I know. To me. He was also sentenced to a counseling program that he didn't even show up to. Oh, mm-hmm. I'm sure they didn't. Did, did they not pursue him Apparently about it? Not. Yeah. Neighbors also later reported that he would scream at teenage girls in the neighborhood, yell racist remarks, and threaten to shoot people. So just an all-around American boy. Yeah, you it's know, right. honestly. Yeah. Whew, whew, I'm getting heated. He was taken into custody, obviously, after this, after they found him, tracked him down, screaming, running around in traffic. Yeah, he didn't exactly try to hide. Fucking idiot. He didn't plead insanity, which he probably fucking should have, honestly, for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but his defender did call in witnesses to talk about his mental state, like his family members. Ultimately, Robert John Bardot was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Rebecca Schaefer's death actually led to the very first anti-stalking law mm-hmm. being passed, which is really fucking amazing. Yeah. Terrible and fucking tragic and disgusting that she had to die for literally no reason. Mm-hmm. And it cost this man $250 to kill her, literally, yeah. yep. to get her address. Uh-huh. But like I said at the time, the DMV was just giving out addresses willy fucking nilly to right. anybody who wanted them. Yeah. So after her death, that prompted the government to pass the Driver's Privacy Protection Act, which prohibited the DMV from releasing addresses of the people in their database. Yeah, I don't know why someone had to die for that to exactly. happen. It just doesn't make sense why mm. you would ever... There's, if you need someone's address that you should have their address for, you should be able to ask them. Yeah, well, weren't they always in the phone book, too? You addresses? know what? They were. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. Now hers might not have been because I think she was renting an apartment, so maybe. Yeah, and I know you can like have it have it not be listed if you do that yourself. Yeah, you have to ask for that or pay. Yeah. Maybe I don't remember. I but, don't know either. But yes, yeah. I remember looking in the fucking phone mm-hmm. book, and it, my my address was there, and my I think it was my mom and dad's name. Yeah, and then the phone, the house phone number and the address. So, yeah, that's crazy, mm-hmm. man. Yeah, holy. Yeah. Ball sack. Mm-hmm. I don't know yeah. how it worked in like a bigger area. I like, don't know either because like Los I'm Angeles. Sure. Or- but the sad thing about that time was it was just kind of looked at as if you were famous and you were in the limelight. Having random fans be weird mm-hmm. was a normality. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just part of being a star, mm-hmm. which is disgusting. Uh, yeah. Just because you were famous, you're you're not inviting people into your personal exactly. space and life. You're, and you're entertaining people. Yeah. Enough. Uh-huh. Why the fuck do they need to try and get right. you to? Yeah. That doesn't make sense. I think he was also failed as oh, far as his mental health percent. and his, his family and, and all of that. Doesn't make what he did right. But no. the people who should have been helping him never did. Mm-hmm. And that's on them. Yeah. Uh, one little fun fact for you before I close out mine. On July 27th of 2007, quote, Bardot, at the age of 37, was stabbed 11 times on his way to breakfast in the maximum security unit at Mule Creek State Prison in Amador County, California. Two inmate-made weapons were found at the scene. End quote. Unfortunately, he lived, mm-hmm. which is a sad thing. Right. And he's still alive today, probably living it up in prison. I hope he never gets out. I hope we never. I hope Did he fucking just. Did you say without the possibility yeah, of parole? Yeah. I hope he just rots, rots, yeah. rots, rots away. I hope he rots from the inside out. Mm-hmm. That's what he deserves. Maybe he gets stabbed a few more times. That'd be good, too, you know. You know what's fucking disgusting? Hmm. You know what's fucking disgusting is he sits around in his little jail cell in prison and he yep. draws stars because he's still fucking obsessed with what people. The fuck? He even draws Rebecca. Wow. Mm-hmm. And the fucked up thing is he has to draw Rebecca at the ripe age of 21 because she never was able to age because of him. So God. he sits around drawing someone that he killed that he mm-hmm. took the life of. Yep. <sighs> Who probably still thinks he had a good reason and it was justified. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure, I'm sure that yeah. he... He's oh, slighted, she, you know. Yeah, yeah. She she wasn't innocent anymore, so she deserved. Mm. Shut up. Fuck off. He. D- I think there was some kind of quote. I don't even want to talk about him anymore. He's yeah. worthless. There was some quote that said something along the lines of one of his like biggest mis- one of his biggest regrets was taking her life, and if he had one wish, it would be to have Rebecca not dead or something. You like had that. that choice. Sorry, yeah. you are the one who chose for her to die. Yeah. So that's the case of Rebecca Schaefer. So I changed who I told you I was talking about and picked mm. someone else. And it's very similar to Rebecca Schaefer's, actually. Okay. This is the tragic murder of Dominique Dunn. A lot of this information is from an article Dominique's dad, Dominic Dunn, wrote for Vanity Fair in 1984. Yes. Okay. So a lot of it's like his perspective, how things really happened like with the family and and just his experience. The article is beautiful, by the way, because he's a writer, like an oh, author. Oh, okay. And we'll link it too, so you guys can check it out. But yeah, it's so good it. and heartbreaking. Horror fans might know Dominique as the actress who played Dana in 1982's Poltergeist. That is her best-known role, and while she did appear in several other movies and TV shows that I'll talk about from 79 to 82, Poltergeist remains her most famous role. It was her first time on the big screen. It was the biggest thing she had done. 
That's why I know this, because I looked at it. What Did I, you? That's Yeah, that's the only yeah. way I, that I know it. Her acting career was on a major upswing right before she died, and she had a promising career ahead of her. She was only 22 years Ugh. old when she died. Babies. Um, unfortunately, hers is another tale of, is just a senseless murder committed by a cowardly man, like so many that's, fucking yeah, others. Yeah, so many fucking of them. Mm-hmm. Dominique was born in Santa Monica, California on November 23rd, 1959, just Hannah's birthday. Oh, November 23rd, yeah. <laughs> to Ellen Beatriz, who was a ranching heiress, her mom, and Dominic Dunn. Dominic, her dad, was a TV and film producer, and he was later an acclaimed author. Dominique was the youngest of her siblings. She had two big brothers who she absolutely adored, Alex and Griffin, and Griffin was also an actor. He was in... um. American Werewolf in London. Oh, yeah. Another, like, horror classic. Mm -hmm. And her parents chose Gary Cooper's daughter, Maria, and producer Martin Manulis as her godparents. Okay. So, obviously, she was born into a pretty charmed life. Yeah. The family settled in Beverly Hills and stayed there until her parents divorced in 1967. She was still just a little girl, like, eight or nine when they divorced. They stayed close, her mom and dad, but he moved to New York and the family kind of split up, but they were amicable. Sure. Dominique ended up attending schools in Connecticut and Colorado, and after graduating high school, she went to Florence, Italy. She stayed there for a year. She learned the language. She studied acting at Milton Catsella's workshop, who was a Scientologist, but that's a whole nother episode. In the Vanity Fair piece her dad wrote, he described her as, quote, totally at ease in a sophisticated world without being sophisticated herself, end quote. Dominic said that she had a thing for taking in homeless animals and had even taken in a cat who'd had a lobotomy oh. and a dog with stunted legs. This reminds me of something that J.R. Rogue would do. (laughs) (laughs) Taken in the animals left and right. The lobotomized cats. I would love to take in animals, but my animals would be pissed because I have a farm inside my fucking house. (laughs) So just a little bit more about Dominique's short acting career. Her very first role was in the made-for-TV movie Diary of a Teenage Hitchhiker, which led to a couple supporting roles in TV shows like Fame, Lou Grant, and Heart to Heart. She also appeared on the show Breaking Away with a recurring role and Hill Street Blues. Now, I don't know shit about these shows, but I have seen Poltergeist, as any good horror fan should, and it truly was her breakout role. Dominique played Dana, like I said, the oldest sister in the Freeling family, and Poltergeist was produced by Steven Spielberg, so that's a big deal. That was his, like, first big success like the breakout, as a producer yeah. for him, mm-hmm. yeah. Poltergeist premiered on June 4th, 1982, and grossed over $70 million at the box office. Isn't that crazy? Uh-huh. After, Especially for that, that year, Yeah, too. yeah, the time frame. After Poltergeist, Dominique got the role of Robin Maxwell in the miniseries V. So this is what she was kind of working on or working toward when she died, this miniseries V. Unfortunately, although the series is dedicated to her, she was never able to star in it. So there is one shot where there's kind of like a small crowd and it's her back. But then they had to replace her. Sure. And it was dedicated to her. You know, at the beginning, how they put the little thing. So... Yes, she was born wealthy and privileged, but she really took what she was given and ran with it. She didn't waste it. She loved acting, and it seemed like she had this really huge sense of determination and passion. Like, she wasn't going to just flounder this. She was going to do it. So, 
In the midst of her blossoming career, Dominique met a guy named John Sweeney. It was 1981, and the two of them met at a party. John was a sous chef at a restaurant on Melrose Avenue in Los Angeles called Ma Maison. Ma Maison? I think Ma it's Maison. French. Ma Maison? Ma Maison? Ma Maison. Ma Maison. <laughs> this place... Ma Maison. <laughs> This place was so fancy pants that they didn't even have their phone number listed because they wanted to really control who came into the restaurant. They wanted the more, they Yeah, they wanted to keep the wrong, quote, wrong types of people out. So they'd have the reputation of being exclusively for the elite. Ugh. Yeah. Gag me with a spoon. Mama saw. <laughs> Mama saw. <laughs> So things with Dominique and John moved quickly. They dated for just a few weeks before deciding to move in together. They moved into a one-bedroom house in West Hollywood together. Now, it didn't take long for the fighting to start. Later on, there would be reports from friends and neighbors of screaming matches, and when the couple took a trip to New York to visit Dominique's dad and her brothers, and at one point during the trip, John did come with her, but at one point, she was alone with her dad and her brothers, Alex and Griffin, and her brothers were kind of teasing her and asked her if her and John were going to get married, and Dominique was like, no, no, I'm definitely not marrying him. Oh, um, yeah, definitely not. <laughs> okay. Uh-huh. Her dad said later that he was relieved when he heard her say that she wasn't going to marry him. He said John seemed overly enamored with Dominique and something was just off about him. Not enough to really trigger like an alarm, red flag, but the dad, Dominic, did call his ex-wife, Dominique's mom, that night and told her, quote, he is much more in love with her than she is with him, end quote. So on the night of that dinner, I guess her dad had left before John and Dominique. He left the restaurant. Her brothers were still there. And this was right after Poltergeist came out. John had gone to the bathroom, and that's when this guy at the restaurant recognized Dominique. This guy yelled out one of her famous lines from the movie and came over to the table where she sat with her brothers and started talking to them. John came back from the bathroom, saw this going on, and flipped his shit. He grabbed the guy by his shoulders, picked him up off the ground, and shook him. According to Dominique's brothers, this man wasn't flirting with her. He wasn't being, like, obnoxious. He was just, like, a tipsy fan who thought it would be cool to talk to a movie star he'd seen all over, like, the TV trailers for Poltergeist. John's reaction was way out of line for the situation, and Alex even told his dad that John was scary. Alex, I should mention, is the only one out of the family who ever, like, had a bad thing to say out loud about John. Gotcha. Okay. This is kind of the first glimpse they had of how controlling and possessive John was over over Dominique. And this was after not very long of dating. Right. Even. You know right. what I mean? So his possession yeah. was very quick. Yep. It escalated very quickly. Oh, his yeah. feelings for her. Mm-hmm. The next day, while still on that trip to New York, Dominique and John were going to meet up with, with her dad for lunch. They arrived late and Dominic said that he could tell right away that Dominique had been crying and there was just this like, tension in the air between her and John. He described John as being nervous, not very talkative, and just kind of off. Dominic said in the article, quote, It occurred to me that Dominique might have difficulty extricating herself from such a person, but I did not pursue the thought, end quote. I'm, so kind of just like a little bell This guy probably ring. has the worst guilt yeah. ever. Mm-hmm. I feel terrible for him. Yep. 
So yeah, dad knew something was off. This relationship was not a happy one, but he let it go because yeah, something wasn't right, but he didn't know how serious it was. He couldn't have known just by these like few instances, you know? And even if you think somebody's off or weird or something, your first Mm -hmm. instinct is not to say, not to think, oh, he's going to kill my daughter. Yeah. He maybe was thinking, oh, he's going to break her heart or he's going to be hard for her to get rid of or something like that, but he's not going to be happy. He's going to kill her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He didn't realize the scope of the situation. He didn't know about the abuse. Yeah. So from this point in the story on, um, I'm just going to throw a trigger warning in here for domestic abuse survivors, because it gets kind of bad. On August 27th, 1982, Dominique and John got into an argument, and John ended up grabbing her by the hair and ripping chunks of it out from the root. Dominique left and went to her mom's house, who had MS. By the way, she was in a wheelchair, this woman. She was still living in California, so their houses were pretty close, close enough for her to drive over there pretty quickly. And John followed her there. He was banging on the windows, banging on the door, screaming for them to let him inside, but Ellen, mom, refused and threatened to call the police. Dominique stayed there with her mom for a few days and then went back home to John. September 26th, 1982, Dominique and John got into another argument, and he grabbed her throat, threw her to the ground, and continued to strangle her. Now, the two had a friend staying at the house with them at this time, and he overheard this. He said he heard, quote, loud gagging sounds, end quote. He ran into the room where it was happening and saw John pinning Dominique to the floor with his hands around her throat. This, I mean, obviously it surprised John when the friend came in because he let go of her and Dominique told this friend that John tried to kill her. John, of course, was like, no, no, she's lying. And he told Dominique, just come back to bed with me. (sighs) Dominique said, okay. She was kind of pretending. She said, okay, I'm just going to go in the bathroom first. And she snuck out the bathroom window. Oh, good for fucking Mm -hmm. her. When John heard her car start outside, he ran out there, jumped on her hood like the psychopath that he was. She stopped He jumped off, and she sped away back to her mom's house. She stayed at her mom's and kind of couch surfed at friends' places for a few days, and then she decided to call John and break up with him. He got all of his stupid possessions out of the house that they shared, and Dominique changed the locks, and she moved back in. A couple weeks after she broke up with John, on October 30th, 1982, Dominique was at her house with actor David Packer, who was going to be on that miniseries V with her. They were rehearsing and hanging out, and at one point, Dominique was on the phone with a friend. John Sweeney, little peeny, had the operator cut into the phone call, and Dominique said to her friend, quote, Oh God, it's John Sweeney. Let me get him off the phone, end quote. <sighs> you fucking, like, God... Just 10 minutes later, John showed up at the house. Dominique talked with him through her locked door for a couple minutes, and then she went out to the porch to continue the conversation. David Packer, the friend who was there, he stayed inside, but he said Dominique and John started arguing. He heard smacking sounds, two screams, and then a thud. This is when David called the cops. But you know what the cops told him? What? Tough shit. Her house is not in our jurisdiction. (laughs) Then David called one of his friends and told them, quote, if I'm found dead, it was John Sweeney who did it, end quote. David snuck out of the house's back door and kind of crept around to the front, and he saw John in some bushes, kind of leaning over Dominique, who was on the ground. And John noticed him, and he told him to call the cops. When the cops finally did come, John walked up to them in the driveway with his hands in the air, and he said, quote, I killed my girlfriend, and I tried to kill myself, end quote. <sighs> 
The next day, October 31st, 1982, Dominic, dad, got a phone call in New York at 5 a.m. He said before he even picked up the phone, he knew it wasn't going to be good news. On the other end was Detective Harold Johnston of the Los Angeles Homicide Bureau. He told Dominic that his daughter was close to death at the Cedars-Sinai Medical Center. Ellen, mom, got on the phone and Dominic asked her what happened. All she said was, Sweeney. So that was enough. He knew. Dominic, Alex, and Griffin met at Ellen's house in California. And I hate this fucking part, Uh, but her dad, Dominic, said that before, while he was packing to to go to California, he was, like, hesitating over whether or not he should bring a black suit and tie. Oh, my God. And he ended up bringing it. Isn't that awful? I fucking hate that. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. That makes me sick. Yep. Yeah, and he said he remembers thinking on the flight there that this mini, this V miniseries, that they were just going to have to shoot scenes without her until she was better again. When Dominique broke up with John five weeks prior, she told her dad, quote, he's not in love with me. He's obsessed with me. It's driving me crazy. End oh quote. my God, that's fucking terrifying. Mm-hmm. By the time the family was all together at Ellen's house, the news that Dominique had been strangled by her boyfriend in her driveway was all over the place. They reported that she was in a coma in the hospital, and the family just kind of hunkered down and kept the TV and radios on waiting for news. It wasn't long before they learned that Dominique had suffered severe brain damage and was brain dead. When they were finally able to see Dominique in the hospital, they, they all went together. Dominique and Ellen and Griffin and Alex, they saw Dominique, and I, I'm only saying what, what they saw because this is what he fucking did to her. She was barely recognizable. They'd shaved off her long brown hair so they could use a bolt to relieve pressure on her brain. Her neck was incredibly bruised, purple and swollen, and they could see very distinctly imprints of where John's hands had been wrapped around it. I fucking hate that that Mm -hmm. was on her body when she died. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I hate that so fucking much. Yep. It was also... That that attack when right before she broke up with him that prompted her, you know, to finally break up with him. She had marks on her neck from that, too. And you could see that in one of the shows that she was on. Her parents watched it later after she died, and they didn't realize that those were not makeup. They were real. Dominique remained on life support over the next four days. They had to get enough brain scans to show that they were staying completely flat, that there was no life. Um, specifically because they would need this for the trial. They didn't want the um, defense to come back and say that they took her off life support too soon. But there... Could you fucking imagine that? Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, over these four days, there there was no... um, No waves. No activity. Yeah, Yeah, nothing. On day four, Dominique was removed from life support. Her organs were actually able to help two people that very same day who were waiting in the very same hospital to get kidney transplants. Oh, wow. Now, just a quick thing about Dominique's funeral. The church the family had chosen to have her memorial service fucked up and scheduled it the same day as a wedding at the exact same time. Jesus yeah. Christ. So, since the wedding party wouldn't budge on moving their time. Of course they mm-hmm. fucking wouldn't. Mm-hmm. God forbid. Your wedding sucks. They had to have Dominique's service an hour later. Dominic said when they pulled up to the church for the service and they opened their car doors, wedding confetti blew into the car and landed at their feet. Like, could you fucking imagine? You're there I to bury your daughter. And, oh, here comes some fucking confetti for you. My God. Disgusting. This poor family. 
So the night that he strangled Dominique, John admitted to the cops right away that he killed her. He was arrested immediately and charged with attempted murder. After Dominique died, the attempted murder charge was dropped and he was charged with first degree murder. He pled not guilty. Of course, of course yeah. Did. Of course. He was being a fucking dolt. Like, wah, wah, wah. I'm fucking John. I'm a man. God. I'm a white man. I didn't mean to. I'm just a poor boy. Nobody loves me. Dominique's family even got a phone call from a reporter, not a lawyer or anyone with any kind of authority to do this, offering them a deal. John was so remorseful and he was willing to go to prison. He wanted a manslaughter charge. He this, I'm to sorry, the family. You don't get to fucking choose. No. And he wanted the assault charge from when he attacked her five weeks before the murder to be dropped. This journalist said that John's attorney didn't see this case as a crime. He said it was a tragedy of a, quote, blue-collar kid who got mixed up in Beverly Hills society and couldn't handle it, end quote. So I'm that, sorry, that but fuck sense. off. That, yeah, that, that makes it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was willing to serve seven and a half years in prison. That, well, that's what willing. he was going to offer them. Fuck off. You fucking murdered her. So, of course, the family said, no, we're not doing that. We're not giving you a deal. We're going to trial. And the trial went on as planned. It began in August of 1983, and John testified that he didn't mean to hurt Dominique. Oh, yeah. They were reconciling. They were going to get married and have babies. No, they fucking Mm -hmm. weren't. You delusional prick. Yep. And on the night it happened, she changed her mind, and he went into a blind rage, and he lunged at her, and he couldn't help it. Okay. It doesn't matter. Uh. Sorry. Yeah. Doesn't Sorry. matter. Even nope. if that's the truth, it mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Nope. You you killed her. He said he tried to revive her by trying to make her get up and walk around, but she fell down. No shut shit. Shut up. No God, shit. Just shut up. He said he tried to administer CPR, which made Dominique vomit, and then he vomited, went to her. Oh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, poor boy. I just had to add that in there. He went to her house and took two bottles of pills to try and kill himself. Good. Yeah. Too bad it didn't fucking work. Mm-hmm. He then went back outside and laid down next to her. John's attorney said that none of this was done out of malice and it was just a heat of the moment type of thing. They compl- doesn't make mm-hmm. it better. No, no. But that was his that was the defense. That's what they came up with. Uh. They completely drugged Dominique's name through the mud and of course tried to make her out to be someone she wasn't. The prosecution had one of John's ex-girlfriends testify. And of course John's attorney wouldn't allow her to testify in front of the jury. But she even said that when they were dating, John had gotten physical with her at least 10 times, and she ended up in the hospital twice because of him. An officer testified that when they got to the scene of Dominique's murder, John said, quote, Man, I blew it. I killed her. I didn't think I choked her that hard, but I don't know. I just kept on choking her. I lost my temper and blew it again, end quote. Mm. Disgusting. Mm. So it's fine. Despicable human being. Of course, they totally disputed the claim that it was a heat of the moment type of outrage on John's part because it takes a long time to strangle someone like that. And that was plenty of time for him to realize what he was doing and pull his, his shit together. So there was a lot of back and forth like this. And on August 29th, the judge, at the defense's request, ruled that there was not sufficient evidence for a first degree murder charge. And the jury was now only allowed to consider the charges of second-degree murder or manslaughter. They deliberated for eight days. And guess which Should one? Should have taken yeah. eight fucking minutes. I know. I guess, don't get yeah. it. Guess which one he got. <gasps> manslaughter. Voluntary manslaughter. He was also charged with a misdemeanor for when he attacked her that September. 
John Sweeney was sentenced to six years in prison, which was the max, and six extra whole months for the misdemeanor. Judge Katz criticized the jury's ruling of manslaughter, and he said that he felt Dominique's death was, quote, a case pure and simple of murder, murder with malice, end yeah. quote. Yeah, okay, mm-hmm. yeah. John Sweeney was incarcerated at a prison in Susanville, California, and he was let out on parole in 1986 after serving three years, seven months, and 27 days of his sentence. Three months after he got out, John got a job as head chef at the Chronicle, which was which was a hoity-toity restaurant in Santa Monica. Griffin, one of Dominique's brothers, and her mom found out that John was working there and started handing out flyers to the restaurant's diners that read, quote, the food you will eat tonight was cooked by the hands that killed Dominique Dunn, end quote. John ended up quitting his job because of this, and he moved out of the city. In the mid-90s, Dominic, dad, was contacted by this doctor in Florida who read the article Dunn wrote about Dominique's death in Vanity Fair, the one that I read. Mm -hmm. This doctor told Dominic that his daughter had recently gotten engaged to a chef named John Sweeney, and he was wondering if it was the same John Sweeney involved in Dominique's death. Jesus Christ. Uh But, like, thank God that this, this dad realized this. Like, what are the chances that he read the article? Oh, my God. Yep. The man was later identified as the same John Sweeney. Dominique's brother, Griffin, he later on, he called the doctor's daughter, the one that was engaged to him, and he was trying to convince her to like call off this engagement, like, you don't want to be married to this guy. Um, John Sweeney accused the Duns of harassing him, and he later changed his name. <laughs> yeah. Oh, of you course. poor, you poor little baby. Oh. <sighs> uh-huh. In interviews, Dominic said that for a while, he he hired this private investigator to follow John and report on his whereabouts and actions. So Dominic's dad was having John followed, which, fine. According to Dominic, this private investigator said that John had moved to the Pacific Northwest, changed his name to John Morrow. Morrow? I don't give a fuck. Dominic said that later on he decided he he didn't want to like waste his life following John and being worried about John and John and John and John and he discontinued like any attempts to to keep tabs on him. Dominic's mom Ellen, they called her Lenny. Um she founded Justice for Homicide Victims, a victims rights group a year after Dominique died. I like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's the story of Dominique Dunn and it's really fucked up. I hate that piece of shit. Ugh. I know. Fuck. Nope. Just that was draining. Uh-huh. Just a stupid little fucking man baby. A big who man couldn't baby. handle himself. This makes me think of so every Friday Katie and I have been posting a different um I don't know if I want to say a charity organization nonprofits, yeah. Yeah, nonprofit that and I think I'm posting it on Twitter and our Facebook page, not the group, but the regular Facebook page. Mhm. Um, just it's kind of like a little synopsis of what the group is and if you want to donate it to or and if you want to donate to them you can but if you guys have any nonprofits, charities organizations whatever mm-hmm. that you want to us to highlight can you please send it to either our email or message me or message the instagram page or the twitter whatever um yeah let us and we'll know. highlight them mm-hmm are you reading or watching or listening or doing anything? What are you working on? What's going on? Oh, Tell me for all about fuck's it. Fuck's sake. 
I am deep in the editing trenches for Blurred Lines, which is my first romance mm-hmm. book. It's terrifying. <laughs> it's editing good. editing this fucking novel is more terrifying than any thriller I've ever written. Why? It's oh, <laughs> <laughs> there's just so. In this book, I do a lot of back and forth in 2010, yeah. 2015. So I'm, it's like a lot trying to make sure that it's all accurate. Yeah, it's a lot of like timelines and yeah. stuff to so keep I'm, straight. We're deleting, me and my editor are deleting a lot of like the back and forth and just trying to make it so it's cohesive and mm-hmm. clear and concise and sexy. <laughs> What else am I doing? I don't know. What are you doing? I haven't been reading shit. I've been Mm -hmm. trying to start different books. Nothing is hitting the G spot. (laughs) So I'm having issues with that. Speaking of books, we started a book club. Thank you to Chloe for suggesting it. Yeah. We're kind of trying to figure out the kinks and the kooks and all of that. The kinks and the kooks. Mm -hmm. Um, You got to join our our group for that one. Yeah, you have to join. You don't get it. The group. We're going to have, I think, basically things on Facebook, and we're going to have like a Goodreads list over there. So that's going to be all of the books that we always mention in this segment of the show. Mm-hmm. They'll always be linked over there, as well as all of our books that we write together yeah. and separately as well. Yeah, you don't have to even, like, I don't even know if we're all going to be reading a book at the same time. I don't know but, what's going to happen. I'm going right. to do a poll later tonight. Yeah, but... If um, you ever want to like learn more about the books that we mentioned, they're on there in a list. So they're yeah. really easy to find. Oh, I should also mention Angela ordered a Talk True Crime to Me shirt over on our Teespring account. Yeah. So if you guys want merch, that's over there. It'll be linked everywhere. Yeah. I don't know what the fucking link is. <laughs> Uh, I have no idea. So you can find all of that on our link trees. It's got the merch, the Patreon links, on our Instagram at Cruel and Unusual the Pod. Twitter is at Cruel Unusual Pod. Our Facebook group is Cruel and Unusual colon the group. So come say come. hi. Come play. Come my lady. Come okay. Um come <laughs> and come and go. Come and join our OnlyFans. Yeah. Our email address is cruelandunusualthepod at gmail.com. We are so st- drop us a line there. We are still looking for your fucking stories. Yeah. We have not gotten very many lately. I'm not sure why you're all being little bitches about this, <laughs> but could you please just fucking do it? No, I'm kidding. But yeah, send us stories. Whatever you want. Yeah. It can yep. be anything mm-hmm. because we'll use them for a mini episode. Yeah. And I'm not doing a reading, watching, listening this week because I'm not doing any of it. <laughs> I mean, reading, watching, listening. I'm not doing any of that. You are very sassy right now. God, I'm sorry. I'm sweaty and I love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.